Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to episode 147, and I'm Danielle Delamar, and happy solstice, and happy holidays, and happy, happy, happy. I'll just take a second right now, as I often do, and ask you, how are you? And then I'll pause and let you take a second to feel into that. So if you are in need of a recovery session, if you are in need of unplugging from the semester so that you don't take the frenzy and all the thoughts and all the unprocessed emotions with you into the winter break, there's still time to register for Semester Unplug. It is Thursday. December 22nd for two hours between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Pacific or between noon and 2 p.m. Eastern. All you have to do is go to selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Don't forget the .com. Go to Career Wellness Workshops and register for Semester Unplug. We'll meditate. We'll circle will help you build a sense of grounding after the semester. Oh, and I should also say, if you are finding that you're unable to register because my system shuts down 12 hours prior to an event. (laughs) So if you are within the 12 hour period and you try to register and it won't let you, just shoot me an email, danielle at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Let me know you want to come to the event and I'll get you in. It's $30. It's a chance to recover. It's a chance to connect with others. It's a chance to process emotions. It's an opportunity to show up for yourself. And honestly, I am about to turn the episode over to Mona Penn Jusay, who, as you'll hear, knows how to show up for herself. This is such an inspiring interview. So much wisdom, so much thoughtfulness, and so much slowness. I have no doubt that in this interview, you will learn something that sticks with you and works on you for a long time to come. Here's the interview now. Thank you for joining our conversation today. I'm talking to Mona Penn-Jusay, writer, educator, filmmaker. Mona, how's it going? Super good. I'm really, really happy to talk with you today and I'm looking forward to Christmas. 
That's my oh. right now. <laughs> yes, and we just talked about that um, before yeah. the recording started. Yeah, I'm so happy about that. Mm, and um, and the just the time I was telling you that um, I used to put into my work um, yeah. made it so Christmas just the holiday season generally was not something that um, I really did, even though I wanted to. Um, because right. I just felt like it was, um, it, it just took too much time and I had too much to do. And so, um, yeah, I'm in a good place too. I love it too. That's um, very good to hear. Yeah. What are your, like, what's your favorite part about the holiday? Just being with my family, because as an American, you know, this better than I do, because mm. you're still in the States and, and I'm not, that's why I'm saying better than I do is we don't mm. get any time. We don't get time. We get two weeks here, two mm. weeks there but you don't get time to sit down and just connect with your family. That's it. That's all I want. That and really good food. And I like mm. Christmas music. I love Christmas movies. Forget about it. Mm. I love them. My gosh, me too. Me too. So you're in France right now, right? Yes. Yes. And you are, you feel that you have more time to enjoy the holidays um, than you did when you were in the States. Absolutely. Because it's just a question of, the time that you have before it turns into Christmas, you have more downtime before. So you're not completely and thoroughly burnt out by the time you get Christmas over here. <laughs> okay. And this is just like a, like a cultural thing. Yeah. And it's, it's not like they're not getting work done. It's just, they structure the 35 or 40 hours completely differently than we do. And they okay. eat dinner later, things like that. So it's a cumulative fatigue situation that I'm talking to you about. And I don't have as much of that as I did back home. So mm. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, so here we are. Um, we, uh, you have this super interesting story. Um, you're from the U S you now live in France, but what we're yes. talking about today is the, your experience in um, working in a Dutch art academy and what that was like for you, what um, you learned about being there, um, and you are currently writing a book about it. Or no, you've written the book. It's just in the midst of final, it's sort exactly. of final stages, right? Getting published. Right, okay. exactly. We have sort of talked about it and we're going to start with like what happened? Like you get invited in this really unique and cool way to teach at a Dutch art academy. Yeah. And then let's just see how that unfolds. Tell us a little bit about um, what happened when you first got the invitation. Okay. So um, I should first very quickly tell you that the connection I have with France is, is through marriage. So I was living in France and my husband and I decided that we wanted our kids to have an education that was affordable and also in English. So we did kind of um, a calculation, geo-arbitrage is what we call it. We figure out where we can go that will be beneficial to ourselves and to our children. So it turned out that it could be the Netherlands. They speak English. It's got a really good high quality education. So we thought, okay, cool, let's do that. So our son was in high school. And he went to an international school, so he didn't have to learn Dutch. But our daughter went to a Dutch bachelor program and a Dutch master's program. So we were in the Netherlands for 10 years. That's mm -hmm. thing number one. Okay. So 
I started a podcast called Maker, and the focus of Maker was for African diasporic photography, contemporary photography, meaning anyone who would, would be picking up a camera and had stemmed from the African diaspora, because there's a big sort of a, a gaping hole at this time. This is 10 years ago, Danielle. So it was like, okay, a little bit different than it is now. It's a lot better now. So I made this podcast and I started to collect photographers and contemporary artists and people who were doing just cool things and happened to be of African descent. Okay. So I got invited to a photography event at a very famous institution, which shall remain nameless in the Netherlands. I go to the event with my friend who is a photographer. And it just so happened that the people on the panel were part of one of the biggest Dutch art academies. And this art academy is the oldest one in the Netherlands and it's one of the oldest in Europe. So mm -hmm. this person who's heading the photography department was on the panel with my friend. So someone in the audience said, hey, you know, this is cute and everything that you have all these African artists and everything that you collect, not me. They were talking to the panelists. And then the person said, well, what are we supposed to do with their work once they create it? So I was sitting next to the person and I stood up and I asked the person, well, what is your name? And the person gave me his name. So I said, here's the thing, like we just met. So now I know you, you know me, I know my friend. So that's three of us. And I have a platform that is the exact place where my friend can put his work. So what you have to do when you create work is that you have to follow it through the entire pipeline. You have to find a place to display it. You have to find people that can sell it for you and you have to find people who can purchase it. So mm -hmm. that's up to us. It's not up to someone else. And then I just mm -hmm. sat down. Okay. So I got home and my friend called me the next day, the man who'd invited me to this event. And he said, Hey, you know, one of the people who run the art department at this photography school really liked what you said because it was one of the only positive, proactive things that came out of the evening. Would you mind if I give you your phone number? So I mm. said, okay, yeah, that's cool. We can do that. Sounds, sounds positive so far, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, I spoke with the person in charge at this time and she said, hey, you know, I like what you said and I'm trying to do all these different things to expand the sort of portfolio at school and I'm trying to change the curriculum and I'm trying to do it by myself and it's really tiring. Do you think you can help me? I thought, yeah, this is cool. What do you have in mind? How do you want to do it? And this is the cool part. She basically made a, a wish list. These are all the cool things I'd like to do, but I don't know how to do them. And it just so turns out that I did know how to do them. And it um, it was a little bit of my my own medicine because I'm always telling my students, you never know who's in the room. So just say what you mean and mean what you say, but be very articulate because you don't know who's listening, right? Mm -hmm. That was uh, mm, something like June or July. So I was able to start in September of 2019 as the first person of African descent ever to be hired at the school in over 363 years. To me, it's a big deal. So mm -hmm. I think I should up there. Maybe you have some questions or something like that. But that's how I got into the academy. That's it. At this point, I'm just sort of imagining you kind of just really excited. Probably, um, I guess I'm imagining you feeling like, wow, <laughs> like I, I, this opportunity just landed in my lap. This was sort of fate. Um, I don't know. Tell me where I'm wrong. How yeah. is that kind of what no, was going on? 
I thought it was um I thought it was really brilliant because it was an open door and I could build my classes any way I wanted. We have a staff of about 50 people there and I was the only person kind of like myself on the staff so I was I was by myself but I wasn't lonely because I had so mm. much fun work to do if that makes sense in the beginning. Mm. So I made um one or two good contacts but it seemed like the students were the ones who were trying to change things. They were really ready to go. So I focused on that more than anything. And that kept me going for quite some time. Then I started doing workshops with teachers at the request of the woman that brought me in. And that's when I started to realize there's some resistance that I'm not prepared for that. I've okay, got to think so about how to do this. You see, it was like tricky, but it was coming up pretty quickly. This was November of my first year. So was there like a particular moment when it felt really heavy in those teacher workshops where you're like, ooh, something's up here? Um, do you have like a story yeah. or a series of stories? Um, here's the thing. I, I did a, a workshop and it was actually called Beyond the Pale. And that was about um, getting outside of your comfort zone. It wasn't about skin color. And that's one of the things people thought, oh, this is about skin color, but it wasn't. It was about diversity and inclusivity, but it was called Beyond the Pale because I wanted to be provocative but um interesting at the same time so the long story short about beyond the pale is that it's, it's very old it's a medieval term and a pale is a fence danielle like a fence around your house right and so in the old days you would have if you were an irish person you would be outside the pale if you were what they called a good english person you'd be inside the pale if you were a person who was um, a christian you'd be inside the pale if you were a jewish uh, heritage you'd be outside the pale so what I was trying to get teachers to do is to look at the concept of having interesting different things outside of the, the barrier but not to be afraid of them if you see what I mean that was my sort of way of getting them to understand that what's happening in their classrooms when they can't accept students who are either from former colonies or students who are LGBTQ plus any of that all of those students are the students who would come to me and they would always have problems. So I started to realize it, it was a sort of mindset issue, if that makes sense. I'm hearing you, and I want to ask more about the students who are coming to you for, for support. Um, but before yeah. I do that, like, was there something that really struck you when you were doing these workshops that made you really realize that there were some big issues yeah. that needed to be dealt Absolutely. with? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this could be, this is the hardest part, to be honest. And I did hear mm. you ask that. I just wanted to, I want to set that up so you can understand. I'm trying to come at this from as far outfield as you possibly can. So mm. no one will feel attacked. Okay. Somehow, one of my colleagues physically stood up and started screaming, it's not my fault, everything's white. It's not my fault, everything's white. And mm. she almost had a like a, a breakdown. Um, another one of the colleagues at the same time, same session said to me, so what are you, some kind of an expert on blackness? What are we doing here? But I hadn't, I hadn't said anything about blackness. I said exactly what I just said to you. Someone yeah. else said, um, well, I, listen, Mona, I, I understand what you're saying, but if we start inviting you people here and these other people, what's going to happen to our jobs? Okay. So it's just me standing in front of at this, I cut the workshop in half so I wouldn't have to deal with 50 people at the same time. So I did 25 the first session, 25 the second session. It's all mm. true stories. Because I knew someone was going to react in that manner because it's always that way. We need to introduce change. 
So I'm standing in front of these people and I'm listening to all these comments. And then I, I could feel it in my body, mostly in my, in my gut, in my stomach. And then I thought, okay, these people are uh, offended. They are feeling attacked. They're afraid. And I understood mm -hmm. all of that. But then mm -hmm. I realized I was by myself and I was going to have to lift up all these layers by myself. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. That would be the first thing that popped into my mind. Wow. Um, so I guess I just, I want to take a second with that image of, it felt like mm -hmm. I was by myself and I had to lift all these layers by myself. Whew, that feels really, really, really heavy. Um, what, what was going on when you were, when you were feeling that and when you were feeling it in your gut, like, how did you respond? How did you navigate this? Yeah. Well, the first thing I had to do with the woman who was um, sort of panicking was I had to physically back away from her to give her space. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't able to, you know, reach out and touch her. There were desks between us and it was in a horseshoe sort of formation, but I felt that she needed more physical space, even though I was in the middle and kind of far away, I stepped back even more. And mm -hmm. as for the man who was saying, are you an expert on blackness? I said, I'm not an, I'm not an expert on blackness, but I'm an expert on myself. And I know mm -hmm. what my experience has been. And so I'm here to share that with you, that I am an expert on. I can tell you that much. And that sort of diffused him. It was kind of like diffusing bombs one at a time. So step back from this lady, say that to that man. And yeah. then for the woman who said, um, hey, what you guys and you people, and we invite you, and then what about our jobs? I said, here's the thing. I fully understand that you are insecure about your job because you know this as well, Daniel. It's the same over here. You have a you have a tenure and then you have a professor who's running around from three different universities in one week trying to paste the ends together. Mm -hmm. Great. And I understand that. So my suggestion was instead of thinking with the mentality of, of lack and shortage, you build a longer table and you add a chair. So you're thinking subtraction and I'm thinking addition. Mm. So it took some time for the, um, for the room to, you know, sort of cool off from, from that. And I think they heard themselves for the first time, think about what it would be like to integrate someone like myself and students like myself into their academy, and they were not ready for it. And they heard themselves say it in the privacy of our own little academy. Hmm. So what was the um, <laughs> the aftermath um, of these workshops, like on you personally, on interactions yeah. with colleagues, uh, just generally. Yeah. Okay. So um, this, I think is, is a good story. It doesn't seem like a good story, but it's the perfect bridge. Someone else during that same workshop, this, the second session of that workshop. So this is the next group of 25 said to me, well, what am I supposed to do with all this information? This is a lot. And, and I feel overwhelmed. I don't even know what to attach it to. That's exactly what he said to me. I don't know what to attach it to, which mm. is a good question. It's not offensive. It's perfectly logical, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what I said to him was not to worry. Something will come up either societally or globally or within this building, and you will find a way to use these tools. That's called life. It's going to happen. I said that to him, and it must have been April. And then on May 25th, George Floyd happens. Mm -hmm. So that was May 25th. So I, I didn't say anything. It was just as explosive 
here, well, I should say there at the time in the Netherlands, as it was in the States. It was the whole world took notice. You, you could not have not taken notice. So I'm working in a photography department and photography is a way to capture stories and shape narratives. And it's, it's a tool. So you would expect they'd be the first ones out there running around with their cameras telling stories. But all of my colleagues were quiet and the students were confused. And there's also COVID at the time. So my classes were online and they would get into the screen and they would start crying. My students would cry and they mm. would say they don't know what to do. And I would ask them if any of the colleagues had reached out to them, try to guide them through it. And they would say, well, maybe one or two. But these were um, one person was actually American. So she had a different way of looking at it. She did a few things. But the other colleagues hadn't done anything, Danielle. And I and I thought, okay, this is not good. Okay, this is not good. And I remember specifically, it was June 4th. I um, sent an email to the woman that had hired me and brought me there. And I said to her, I, I know that you knew, you knew this letter was going to come. You knew this email was going to come. I'm not sure what you're doing or not doing behind the scenes, but it's very difficult for the students and it's very difficult for me. And it's very difficult for the colleagues. So I am willing to write a, an open letter to the colleagues and an open letter to the students so we can get moving. We have to get moving. And she said, okay, I agree. So I wrote a letter to my colleagues, an open letter, which was called The Kids Are Not All Right. And you can find that on my LinkedIn. And I wrote a letter to my students, which is called uh, Second Arrow. And I will tell you why I called it Second Arrow. Do you know that the Second Arrow story from Buddhist history? Have you no. heard that story before? No. So in the second arrow story, the Buddha tells a story about a person who's been shot by an arrow. And that's the first thing that happens. And so there's pain. Pain is the first thing. And the second arrow is how you decide to react to it. That's the second arrow. So that's mm -hmm. why I called my letter the second arrow. And I made a, a full-blown plan of what we could do to react to the story within ourselves but then to act in society and mm. the, the students were super excited about it and we put together this whole campaign and we got working on it and this is a true story as well the, the bit where i sent to my colleagues about the kids are not all right my email inbox exploded danielle with people just like oh my god i'm so happy that you wrote this i didn't know what to do i wasn't sure what to say i was kind of embarrassed one person said i didn't realize you were black which was insane to me but that happens as well. Uh, someone else said, you know what? I'm going to ask you to help me create this curriculum. They, their hearts opened and then their minds opened almost overnight. It's a true story. So the problem with that is that then I'm in the position of doing all this emotional labor for like 350 people because I have 250 students and 50 colleagues and one me. Mm -hmm. And you can see how this fits into Danielle's life sort of um, mission is how are you going to hold all that up as an educator? And you and I both know you can't. Mm -hmm. When were you um, really feeling the the toll on your health? Um, and yeah. I'm wondering if you, like, what were your sort of symptoms, you know, whatever, whatever the health issues were mental or, or, or otherwise? Yeah. Um, just a, a feeling of low-grade anxiety when I would have to go there and talk to all these people and try to guide them. And I felt like a, a guidance counselor instead of an educator. I wasn't talking about photography 
as a tool or as an art form as much as I was talking to kids about their not being able to sleep or not knowing uh, what to photograph because of COVID and the world is, uh, it felt um, too much for them. So their energy I absorbed through the screen, yeah. right? Yeah. And then um, to top all of that off in, uh, I would say uh, August of 2020, my husband ran into some serious health issues and I had to take a leave of absence to take care of him while all these things are also going on at school and there's also COVID. Mm. And that became, I mean, it was um, a heart condition, which now has, has ended up that he's going to have a heart transplant. It got that serious. So he's going through that. I'm dealing with these things at school and I started to feel, I started to feel almost like outside of my body. Like I was just doing things robotically. I would call my sister and she's in the healthcare industry. And she would say, you have to sleep and you have to eat and you have to drink water. Just do that. Mm. You have to do that. Eat, sleep mm. and drink water. Cause I would forget Danielle. I would forget mm. just like on robot mode. Right. Mm -hmm. So I decided in now it's December 2020, mathematically it's December 2020. And I've only been there since September 2019. So I took a leave of absence because I couldn't care for my husband and then do all of these things at school at the same time. And right in the middle of it, to be honest with you, right in the middle of it, there was, um, this is right before George Floyd, there was a series of scandals at all the Dutch art academies. And if you just Google, uh, let's say, Dutch Art Academy's Scandal 2019, mm. you'll be there for, for six weeks. So all these <laughs> things are going on behind the scenes, under the surface, in other departments at my school. So it was just, the whole thing around it was just uh, pulsating with, for me, what was complete negativity. And I could feel it in my body. It did feel like low-grade anxiety. I'm not an anxious person. I've never experienced anxiety, but I felt like I didn't want to go. I didn't want to get up and go there. I'd have to sort of um, uh, meditate and get myself in this headspace. I had the luxury of taking a train for 45 minutes to an hour so I could get my head straight, but it just, it was just negative after a while. Everything was um, complaining and negativity and, and the kids would feel in danger, not safe is the way they put it, unsafe mm -hmm. environment. It was just too much. Just to, and, and I absorbed every minute of it. Ooh. I know, I know. If I could just tell you one last thing that would really, this is, it's positive, but it's also, it's amazing. I gave one of my students a hug once. I won't say his name. I'll say uh, he's Eastern European. I'll just say that much. Kid whispers to me, hey, Mona, if it gets to be too much, you have to leave because you are the only one and you cannot do this by yourself. He said that to me in my ear. The mm -hmm. kid was uh, 18, 19 at the time. And um, when he said it, did it ring true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And was that like a moment where you were like, yes, I I do need to leave? Or were you like, yes, I've been thinking about that. And now you've sort of confirmed it. Like, I'm just kind of wondering what that comment did um, to you. It was, I'll circle B in my Daniel questionnaire. I was kind of thinking <laughs> about it. I was kind of thinking about it. Yeah. I was yeah. kind of thinking about it. Yeah. And you know, it was more like, um, how and when, you know, that part. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. Was how, yeah. How and when. Okay. How, when I'll dig down even deeper on this while I was doing this whole scenario, 
with my husband, I was, I did my thesis in ICU. I wrote my thesis on my cell phone at the ICU. Oh and my I did gosh. my classes from my uh, other small university. I did them in the waiting room of the ICU because I didn't want to be at home by myself with his paper writing about Dutch art academies while my husband was across town in this hospital. I didn't want to do that. So yeah, I did that. So I guess I'm just struck by your tools that you had, because not all of us have these kinds of tools when we're going through um, really difficult yeah. times and um, your ability to meditate, um, just just having in your mind, I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to drink water, um, like knowing that you needed to be at the ICU, knowing that um, like you you needed to be there that was the important place to be. Like, um, I feel it, at least this is how I'm hearing it. It feels like you had a lot of tools to help you through this, to hold you. Um, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, no, you're, you're right. You're right. And I, I knew it at the time. And I think the shortest version of my telling you where the tools came from would be that my, I lost both of my parents what I considered to be early, my mother at 12 and my father when I was 15. Mm. So I made a, a decision. I was in the, um, the Midwest at the time in Rantoul, Illinois, and in Champaign, Illinois. And I, which is where I was born. I have family all over the East Coast. So I decided on my own at 15 to ask my aunt to adopt me because I was super conscious of not wanting to go into the foster care system. And I know for a fact that it seems like, oh, she's going on a tangent. But I can tell you, Danielle, from the time I was 12 until now, I remember sitting on the steps outside of my house in my backyard. And I kind of heard a voice that said, hey, you know, you need to tell stories so that no one ever feels the way you feel, which was lonely and completely um, isolated with all of this pain. And I was 12 years old. And so I remember asking this voice in my head, well, how am I supposed to do that? And the, the answer was, you have to write. You need to write. And I remember the first poem that stuck in my head was uh, Robert Frost, Nothing Gold Can Stay. And it got me through that moment. And I realized I'm only going to be able to get through what I'm getting through in this Dutch Art Academy using the exact same tools. Constant yeah. gratitude journal, constant focus meditation, like slow down and just one thing at a time. And if I know how to do something, just do that. And then the other stuff will follow you. You have to just do the, the next right thing. That's how I got through it. That's that's all I could do because it was way too much. I am struck by this 12-year-old Mona having this moment. You need to tell stories so that no one else feels alone. And um, I'm struck by you going back to that lesson, um, to hold yourself up in adulthood. Um, I don't know, I guess I just wanna pause with that and ask if you wanna say anything more because I'm I'm really hit by that. It feels, it feels uh, mm. lovely and also <laughs> terrifying and all the stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can appreciate that. I just, um... I would only say this because sometimes I ask myself the same thing other people will ask me, which is, how are you doing all of this? I don't really know, Danielle. I just know it's from the inside 
And I don't know why some people can handle more things than other people and still be able to, you know, make it through. I don't know. I don't have the answer. But I do know that if I didn't have these stacks of books that are all over my house and I, I didn't, I'd been writing in my gratitude journal for decades. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have this sort of calculus in my head that goes, you you have so many things to be grateful for. And I understand this is not right now to you. doesn't look like a good thing. Maybe it will never look like a good thing. That also happens. But you have to do it because it's in your life. So you have to do it. How are you going to do it? That's always the question that comes back to me. Well, how are you going to do it? It's here. Hmm. Like no one signed up for their, their husband almost dying and the students absolutely freaking out and melting down and no support from their colleagues and an incredibly a hyper racist environment in which to to contextualize their lives. Who would sign up for all that? That's like way too much. Hmm. So the only thing I can say to you is that voice, I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was just me talking to myself. I'm not trying to be deeper spiritual. I just know it's a fact. It happened and it's kept me on track ever since. I write every single day. And I, I guess I'm hit by you saying that the question is how and why. That's the thing yes. that always comes up to you. Um, so I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking about the, I just get through it by doing the next right thing. And um, I think that so many of us, when we're sort of stuck in our heads and and like feeling really ungrounded, we don't we can't even feel into what the next right thing is. And so I don't know, I guess I want to stop and, and ask just for anybody who might be listening, how do you feel into your next right thing? I, I, I mean, I'm hearing gratitude. I'm hearing that kind of thing. What, what else might you offer us who, who feel ungrounded, who might be in similar situations right now? Right gut instinct like we all have this feeling when we are I always use the example of you're walking down the street on one side of the sidewalk someone else is coming toward you you can feel them you can feel their energy and you can decide whether or not you want to cross the sidewalk or not you've been there right Danielle you can recognize Mm -hmm. that right Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. and it's not um it's not something that you can say I know exactly what this person is going to get up to because you don't know you just know if it's going to be okay, neutral, positive, or not good. And that's kind of the, the thing that I would say to people. Can you please use your gut instinct more? And I think another thing that leads into that is technology is fantastic and it's great and we all love it. But I don't look at it first thing in the morning. I'm, I, I drink my lemon ginger water. I meditate. I do my little gratitude journal and 10 other things. And when I'm ready to respond to the outside universe, then I open the machine. And I'm telling you, that works for me. I do not open that machine. And here's how I, I explain it to my students. I have um, an amphitheater sometimes, and we have uh, 27 students in this class. And I will say, uh, give me a problem that you have right now. Some kind of a, not something deep and spiritual, but something academic. Person will say, um, I'm having trouble organizing my study habits. Okay, cool. Come up here. So person comes to the front with me. So there are 26 people in the audience and I go, okay, so turn around and ask them, uh, what should I do to organize my study habits? This is the rule. The 26 people have to all start talking at the same time. So there's one person in the front of the class with me, 
they ask a question, they look at the students, 26 people start talking at the same time. Inevitably, well, what do you think the student's reaction is that's at the front of the class, Danielle? What, what would be the reaction to 26 people talking to you at the same time? Overwhelm. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Okay. So then I say, okay, if you had a problem, any kind of problem, would you go to your window, stick your head out, and ask anyone <laughs> in the universe for an answer? And then they all start talking at the same time. And they go, well, no, that's ridiculous. Why would I do that? I, go, I don't know. Why do you Google things first thing in the morning? Mm. amen oh my god do you know what i mean yeah that's a great way to um to illustrate exactly what google does to your brain (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's i mean it sounds off track but that's what i would say to people get that gratitude journal going don't open that machine first thing in the morning talk to yourself first then talk to everyone else that's two things i think that will help and then any kind of thing that you can do that looks like or feels like meditation and uh, body movement, dance or whatever your thing is, that's it. That's like the recipe. And I've not met anyone who doesn't think that's the recipe. There are like a lot of old people around me. Old is like when you're 84, I could get to call you old because you do. So if they always tell me that stuff too, you got to lay off the technology, you know, and do do what you love with people you love as often as you possibly can that's what they tell me just little recipes like that because life is short i just told you that story danielle if you wake up one day and you just have to spend your weeks eight hours a day in icu it's during covid i mean can you can you put more on the plate what do you have else for me Hmm. you know my thought at the moment is just the value of (laughs) The pause, um, the pausing when you wake up in the morning, the pausing to listen to the gut instinct, um, the pausing to do the meditation or the body movement, the pausing to love your people. um, That's what, uh, yeah, that's what I'm holding right now, the pause. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. You have to, because um, I'll say this to you too, and it's a little difficult, but I'll say it anyway. My my husband said to me, you know, if I don't wake up, you are going to be here and then you're going to not have finished your master's, not have made your film, not do what you want to do. And what good is that going to do anyone else? He said that to mm-hmm. me. So that meant you have to continue doing it. And he was in a coma for quite some time, a medically induced coma, but a coma nonetheless. He said this mm-hmm. to me before he went to sleep which is why I finished my master's. That's love. Mm. That's, that's him paying attention to me as he may or may not be uh, coming back to this party. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. So because I have two children watching me, they're young adults, but they still watch. That's just the way that, that goes. I have to do the next right thing. That's the next right thing. The next right thing is you hold your head up. It doesn't mean you can't cry. I did that. But crying is not going to write my thesis. <laughs> and this thesis is about Dutch art thesis, academies. 100% is about Dutch art academies as I'm living through it, as I'm watching my students live through it, as I'm working my way into and out of multiple Dutch art academies to kind of see, maybe it's just this one institution, you know, you don't want to make a snap judgment, but uh, nope, it was prevalent. 
started doing my research, wrote a 15,000 word um, thesis, got the master's, and I turned it into a book, which is a book that I decided would be useful to any art academy, or also if you want to know the truth, any sort of institution that wanted to look at itself with more empathy, because the core that I found that was missing from the Dutch art academies was empathy. I decided mm -hmm. that. And so my book is called The Empathic Gaze, and The Empathic mm -hmm. Gaze is a whole theory about how to look at other people's existence so that you can add more empathy to it. It doesn't teach you how to be empathic or to have empathy. It teaches you how to look at things more thoughtfully. That's what the mm -hmm. book is. So um, who should be taking a look at your book? Who is it meant to support the most? Honestly, I would say if you're a student and you, or, or a non-student, if you're 15 years old plus, this book's going to help you because you're probably in some sort of an educational institution or you're thinking about dropping out of an educational institution or you might be an educator at some sort of an institution. Yeah, those people. I think that. But if you wanted to broaden it, I for example, did a talk on the empathic gaze at Getty, which is the first foremost photographic institute on the face of the earth. They own every picture probably that you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. So I did the talk with Getty and the the situation with Getty is that they're trying to get, again, more photographers, more uh, people from different backgrounds to help them broaden their, their stance in the world. So you mm -hmm. see, it could be for students, but it could be for institutions as well. I uh, I guess I want to go back to the um, the twelve year old Mona again, um, and mm -hmm. the the voice that said, you know, tell the stories. And I, I guess I'm also thinking about what your husband said to you. You've got to do this. People have to hear the stories. Um, and I'm I guess I'm wondering what the story is like um yeah what what's the story that we have to be able to hold on to um yeah 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 um i'll say it like this um as i as i was finishing that book i also started working on a film which i told you a little bit about but not too much which will also answer this question and the film is about a woman who's african american and indigenous, a real person, this is not, you know, invented. It's a documentary who explores the Arctic. And this answers your question about what is the story. The story is this. The story is, believe it or not, everything is connected. And all of us are one thing. That's the story. The other part of the story is you are not by yourself. You just think you're by yourself. The other part of the story is in order to find your tribe or your people, you have to go look for them. Mm. And the last part of the story is when you get the call, answer it. Mm. Mona, this has been so powerful. Is there anything you want to make sure you say before we end this conversation? Just this. I think that when we go to sleep at night, if we could understand that we're not promised tomorrow, we'll do a better job during the day. 
Mm. It's like one minute at a time and one hour at a time. And if you want people to write good things about you and think well of you, then you better act better. That's it. And are we going to be expecting your book soon? I know it's soon, but like how yes, soon? Yes, it's very soon. What should we be very looking soon. for? Um, hopefully by uh, March of this year. It's finished already. I'm going to talk to my publisher in two days. So um, she's going to give me a date and I will be able to take pre-orders and all that good stuff. And hopefully you can put some links in our chat and people can know where to go and follow for the film and the book and everything else that I've got up to mm-hmm. these past few months. Yes, absolutely. And um, what about you personally? Are you open to, um, you know, connecting with people through LinkedIn or some other way? For sure. I mean, I love LinkedIn. People send me emails sometimes because of my podcast, which is called True North World. And I wish people would go listen to that. And you can Mm -hmm. send me um, info on LinkedIn. I meet a lot of people through LinkedIn. Very, very, I've met you through LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I am so grateful um, that you reached out and that we're having this conversation. I just, I I feel so grounded um, Mm. in this conversation. And I think it's just because um, the, the wisdom is, uh, is very real and tangible um, that's, that's coming from you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Danielle. It's been really lovely talking to you and I'm really just grateful that you said yes you said yes to me see mm-hmm. I asked a question and you said yes and you answered the call and I appreciate that thanks for listening to self-compassionate professor find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle SC prof or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.